good to see you all. I want to invite you to grab a Bible. Turn with me to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15 is where we'll spend the majority of our time in God's Word this morning. We're going to close out Titus 2 in our sermon time. Before we dive in, though, I want to uh, offer, put one thing before you. You might have gotten one of these as you walked in, but this is a grand opening invite card. And so I mentioned that in two weeks on September 10th, our small group season will be launching. We also are going to be launching our campus officially uh, as a local church in Williamsburg on September 10th. And so here's my ask for you who have been with us in August since we did the soft opening a couple weeks ago and since we've been meeting on a regular basis this month. Um, grab one of these or grab five of these, but our hope is to invite as many people as we can to join us on September 10th. We're going to preach the gospel really clearly. It'll be week one of our Nehemiah series. We're going to go through Nehemiah this fall. Um, so it'll be a sweet time of corporate worship in the morning. And then after our gathering, um, we'll actually, Lord willing, weather permitting, we'll head outside onto the lawn where we'll have a bounce house and snow cones and cookies and drinks. I think Miss Carrie's going to do face paint for the kids. We'll have lawn games, cornhole, and can jam. Um, if you want to hang out for two hours, do that. If you want to hang out for 20 minutes, do that. But it should be a sweet time of fellowship immediately after our service on September 10th. So next week, Labor Day weekend, then the week after September 10th, grand opening, grab one of these coastal church, uh, five of these, and invite someone to our grand opening. Sound good? Yes? Amen. All right, let's dive into God's word this morning. I'm real excited about this text. Um, here's what I want to do. I want to just read it. Titus 2, 11 through 15, I'll pray and then we're going to dive in. So let's read the word of God. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray. And Father, we pray Words of Psalm 119 this morning. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your law. God, we know that scriptures tell us that your word is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, that it is not bound, that it does not fail to accomplish the purposes for which you have set it forth. And so I pray now, God, that for the next few minutes, as we study your word, as we get to walk through a really sweet text, I pray that the spirit of God would move freely in this place, that your spirit would convict hearts, would challenge hearts, would comfort hearts, encourage hearts. God, I pray that this would be a holy moment. Bless our time today. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So let me recap just real quick. The last week, uh, we, we looked at the first half of chapter two, and our time was really practical. We looked last week at God's design or God's order for roles. 
We looked at God's order for older men and older women, younger men and younger women. And it was real practical. My hope is that last week we all walked away with something to hold on to, for something to work on in the coming week. That was the what. We saw what we were supposed to do. At the end of our time last week, we looked at verse 10, which gave us the why. So verse 10 in chapter two of Titus says that we do all these things so that we might adorn the doctrine of God. Or in other words, so that we might make the gospel beautiful. And so the what is we're gonna walk according to God's design for our roles. The why is so that we might adorn the gospel, make beautiful the gospel to a watching world. Now, Lord willing, this week and next week, we'll be answering what I think is is probably the most important question, the how. We've seen what we're supposed to do now. For two weeks, we've seen God's order for the church. We've seen why we wanna have that order to make the gospel beautiful. And now this week and next week, we will see Lord willing the how. That's our big question this morning. How do we live out the Christian life? We're gonna be answering this question today and next week as we close the book on Titus. And in this passage today, Paul is giving Titus and us some really good insight into the how. He gives us some motivation, some fuel on how we live our Christian lives. And so let me give you my thesis statement this morning, my my big one-liner this morning. We don't have it in your notes, so you might write it down and then we'll unpack some of this. The Christian life is fueled by the past and present grace of God and hope in the future glory of God. I'll say that one more time because I think it's all over this text. The Christian life is fueled by the past and present grace of God and hope in the future glory of God. Now, let me show you what I mean. Here's the first thing I want us to see from this passage. Now, I wanna encourage you, have a physical Bible open on your lap or have the scriptures pulled up on a tablet or a smartphone. I think it'll be helpful this morning, especially if you see the whole paragraph, because we're gonna do some real legwork here. In this text, we see two appearances of Christ, two advents, two comings of Jesus. The first one we see is in verse 11. We see the appearance of grace. Look with me at Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, offering salvation to all people. Now, when Paul says that the grace of God has appeared, he's talking about the physical bodily incarnation of Christ, that Jesus of Nazareth was fully God and fully man, and that he was the appearance of grace to a lost and dying world. And this is where we are right now in 2023. The grace of God has appeared. It's an empirical fact. Jesus came to earth, lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death on the cross, and then bodily rose again from the grave, offering us Christians forgiveness and grace. And the Bible says this grace is available to everyone. Verse 11 says all people. That's the first appearance of Christ we see. We see a second one though, one that hasn't happened yet in verse 13. So look at Titus 2 verse 13. We see the appearance of glory. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we as Christians, we wait for this second appearance. We we look back on the first appearance, we wait for this second appearance, this second coming of Jesus, and we long for it, we hope for it. The Bible calls it our blessed hope. We live in eager anticipation of it, but it hasn't happened yet. And so this is where we are. This is the context in which we are living out Titus 1 and the first half of Titus 2. We walk according to God's order and God's design in the church, looking back with gratitude on the grace of God 
and looking forward with eager anticipation at the coming of the glory of God. Now, I want to show us exactly how these two appearances of Christ help us answer the how question, right? That's our big question. How do we live the Christian life? I think this text gives us some insight. So let's take one appearance at a time. Number one, the first appearance we see in this text is the appearance of grace. It's in your notes. Number one, the appearance of grace. So what does this appearance of grace do? How does it help us? I want to put before you three ways that the appearance of grace, the first advent of Christ, might make a difference in really your life this week. And we'll see these straight from the text. Letter A, the appearance of grace offers salvation to all people. The appearance of grace offers salvation to all people. We get that right from verse 11. Let me read it again. The grace of God, again, the incarnation of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Now, let me explain what this doesn't mean. It does not teach that all people will be saved. If you're new to Coastal this morning, or if you're just checking out the church, or you're even exploring Christianity, I want you to be crystal clear on what we believe as a church. We believe that this book, cover to cover, teaches us the good news of the gospel. And if I could ask for anything this morning, I want you to leave here with a greater understanding of what the gospel is. And so from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we've boiled down the gospel into three core facts. And if you were with us for a few years at Yorktown, these are going to sound real familiar. Three core facts of the gospel. Number one, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. That's what we first need to know, that he is perfect, that he lived a perfect life. Second core fact of the gospel is that Jesus died on the cross for our sin. That even though he didn't deserve death, Jesus took on death on the cross. And that on the cross, Jesus took the wrath and the hatred of God towards our sin. Jesus took that on himself and died a physical, real death on the cross. And the core fact of the gospel number three is that Jesus bodily rose from the dead. That his resurrection was a literal resurrection that the disciples didn't imagine or hallucinate a risen Jesus. It wasn't a spiritual resurrection, but that Jesus really rose from the dead, which means, church, that we one day will really rise from the dead. So Jesus is God. He died on the cross for our sin. He bodily rose from the dead. Now, that's the gospel. What do we do with the gospel? We repent of our sin, which means to acknowledge that we are sinners, to turn away. Repent just means to turn back from our sin. We believe in the message of the gospel, those three core facts. And in a John 1 kind of way, we receive Christ into our lives. And when we do that, God forgives our sin. And he applies the appearance of grace that we see in verse 11 on our behalf. He covers us with grace. He passes over our sin all because we've trusted in the gospel. And this gift, church, is a gift of grace available to all people. It's available to everyone. I love when the Bible talks about salvation applying to all, not just people who come to church or people who live good, upstanding, moral lives people that have their acts together or people without pasts that they're embarrassed or ashamed about. No, when the Bible says all people, it means all people. And so this has to be our starting point this morning. If you're here and you wouldn't yet call yourself a follower of Jesus, then I want you to know that offer of free grace, that offer of salvation is on the table for you. Right now, repent of your sin and believe in the message of the gospel. Receive Christ. God, in his grace, has brought you to Walsingham Academy right now to hear that word. 
So it's my hope that you would consider it, that you would see that this offer is on the table for you and you'll see in the remainder of our time, this offer won't be on the table forever. So that's where I wanna start. The first thing this appearance of grace does for us, the first thing that the first advent, the first coming of Christ does for us is it offers us salvation. All right, letter B. The appearance of grace trains us to renounce ungodliness. So it offers us salvation and trains us now to renounce ungodliness. Look at verse 12. What else does grace do? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Here's the thing. Oftentimes when Christians talk about grace, we talk about it in the past tense like the moment when grace was first applied to us. And I do that myself. If you've been around the church for a while, you know that Ephesians 2 says, by grace, we have been saved. God has saved us once and for all by grace. And when we think about grace in church today, we think about that moment, the moment we were saved, the moment we were justified, which is the theological term for simply being declared righteous because we believed in the gospel. And praise God. If we praise God for that grace, we praise God that grace saves us. That in and of itself is a miracle. But here's where I wanna stretch us just a little bit. The scriptures are clear. The same grace that saves us is the same grace that also sanctifies us. In other words, the same grace that's offered salvation to all people in verse 11 is the same grace that teaches us, trains us to renounce ungodliness in verse 12. Grace isn't just the means by which we are pardoned, church. It's the means by which we are empowered, empowered to grow in holiness and righteousness, empowered to actually achieve meaningful victory over sin. This is where God's grace and our effort actually come together to work in harmony here, not in our salvation. Our salvation is God alone. We're justified by God alone. But God's grace and our effort come together in our sanctification which again is the theological word for just growing in holiness. In our sanctification, in our training to renounce ungodliness, there is this grace-fueled process where we very much have a role to play. Look at verse 12 again. The word train in verse 12 of Titus 2 is where we get our word discipline, which communicates to us that overcoming worldliness takes discipline. It won't just happen without any effort on our part. So think about what this might mean in your life. If you are working, I've had a lot of these conversations lately, so maybe this is you. If you're working right now on taking every thought captive to Christ, if you wanna fill your mind with more scripture, to be obedient to God, take every thought captive, but your Bible reading time right now is limited to the you version verse of the day, then you're gonna have a hard time with that goal. We need to be a people who are are disciplined, who set aside time for slow and unhurried meditation on God's word. We wanna memorize God's word. If we actually wanna take every thought captive, we need more than just five minutes in the scriptures. If you are, if you're sitting here right now and you're battling sexual sin or sexual temptation, and you're trying to honor God in your sexuality, and you're trying to please God in every area of your life, and it seems like a struggle that you just can't shake right now, but you're allowing yourself to watch movies and TV and 
Instagram reels that are filled with things that are causing you to lust, then you're gonna have a hard time actually achieving meaningful victory in that area of your life. It's because victory actually requires discipline. Same thing applies to your, your prayer life. If you wanna grow in your prayer life, which, man, if I were to ask for a show of hands, we probably all want to grow in our prayer lives. But you're just hoping that in the busyness of life, you every once in a while get free time and an urge to pray and those two things collide at the same time. Guess what? That's not happening. Any Christian who's been walking with Jesus for a long time knows that. The enemy wants to stop you from praying. So what does this mean? It means that we discipline ourselves to set aside time to seek the face of our Father. Growing in Christ takes discipline. God-empowered, grace-fueled discipline. When we commit ourselves to the disciplines of grace, asking the Lord to work through us and bless them. Now, if I could just say a special word to our younger people, right? If you're in middle school or in high school, or if you're in college, I know this is William and Mary's first week back. We're so glad to have you college students. If you could figure out this spiritual discipline part now, then your life will be abundantly blessed later. Can every older saint say amen? Amen. amen. Like the, the practices and the patterns that we put into place right now will form us and shape us later. So if you're trying to follow Christ and you're in high school or you're in college and you're waiting for the time to make it happen instead of making the time to seek after the disciplines of grace, then consider what you're doing. These disciplines of grace matter. This sanctification process matters to us for so many reasons. But one of the main reasons it matters is because it's evidence to us that we've actually been saved. If we see in our lives actual gradual growth in Christ, an increased hatred of sin, an ability to resist sin more and more, it's one of the surest signs that the saving grace of Christ is actually also the sanctifying grace of Christ. We need to see this, church. Jesus didn't just come to save us from the penalty of sin. He came to free us from sin itself. Look at Titus 2.14, just two verses down. It says that he gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness. It would have been really easy for Paul to write, he came to redeem us from hell, which he did, church. Praise God he did. But he also came to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people, for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Grace changes us and it purifies us so much so that when we've actually met Jesus, we look different. Let me put it this way. Imagine if I was really late to our worship gathering this morning like really embarrassingly late. Like the trailer shows up at 7 a.m. and the most hardcore saints are out here setting up. Praise God, amen. And man, doors open at nine. We start setting up chairs and man, Chip leads prayer in the chapel over there at 945. All are welcome anytime. We're setting up our kids' space. Everything's being set up. The band is doing their rehearsal, but uh, someone looks around and is like, man, I haven't seen Colin yet today. And you guys trust me. Hopefully you figured he'll be here in time, but doors open, people come in. We start to sing and worship and there's still no pastor. And we sing a couple songs, it's time for the sermon and the, the slide rolls down and the pulpit is empty. And you do that thing that you do in undergrad when the professor doesn't show up in time and you're like, well, how many minutes have to go by before I can leave? 
I think it's like 15 for a PhD. You William Mary kids could correct me. But anyway, there's no pastor. And then all of a sudden, I burst through those doors back there. And I run up here to the pulpit. I get up here and I'm like, guys, I am so sorry. I'm late this morning. Forgive me. I apologize. You wouldn't believe it. When I was driving down 199, I was T-boned by a Mack truck going about 70 miles an hour. I'm sorry I'm late. Now, if I said that in front of this gathering, you would probably think one of two things. One, he is out of his mind insane. Or two, he's just lying to us. Why is that? Because if someone actually got T-boned by a Mack truck going 70 miles an hour, their lives would look different. I probably wouldn't be standing up here this morning. I would need some help. The same thing applies to grace. If we've actually come to know Jesus, we've actually experienced the grace that saves us, then our lives will absolutely be marked by the grace that changes us. That grace has an impact in our lives. It replaces, as verse 12 says, our worldly passions with godly zeal. It helps us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Listen, church, God cares about your sanctification. I care about your sanctification, your growing in holiness. God cares about mine. So much so that he's given us grace, not just to save us, but to help us, to train us, to work with us as we renounce ungodliness. All right, letter C. Last thing that the first appearance of Christ does is it carries us in the waiting. It carries us in the waiting. Verse 13, we've seen that the appearance of grace offers salvation, that it trains us to renounce ungodliness, and now we'll see that it holds us. It carries us as we wait for this second appearance of Christ. My wife and I, Amy, we dated for five and a half years before we got married. We were high school sweethearts. Uh, she went to school down in Florida State. I went to CNU just down the road in Newport News. And actually, Lord willing, I'm planning on sharing more of my story next week. I want you guys to know where your pastor's coming from on a regular basis. Um, but for this morning, point is we dated for a really long time. Five and a half years felt like a really long time. A lot of FaceTime calls, worked three jobs in undergrad so I could buy plane tickets to go see her. Um, and we got married on May 27th, 2017. We got married on a Saturday morning in Northern Virginia. Now, if you're from that area or you know that area at all, what does it do on Saturday mornings in May? It rains, it rains. And so we saw uh, from about a week out that the forecast was looking worse and worse for our wedding. I remember sitting and talking with Amy pretty much every night. We would just pray, God, give us a break in the rain. Give us a break in the rain. Help it to not rain. Um, wedding day rolls around and guess what? God in his providence decides, nope, Colin, it's raining. So it rains. And I remember getting ready with my guys and putting on the suit and tie and being so excited and didn't matter. My groomsmen were hyping me up saying, dude, we're going to go out there with umbrellas. The pictures are better in the rain. First of all, if you get married in the rain, that's what everyone says. Pictures are better in the rain. I think they say that as a consolation. <laughs> anyway, it's raining. I'm getting ready. And then about five minutes before the ceremony is supposed to start, they come to me and they say, hey man, good news. In about 30 minutes, there's going to be a break in the rain. And so are you okay pushing this ceremony back about 30 minutes? I thought in my mind, I have waited five and a half years to marry this woman. Heck no, I'm not pushing the ceremony back. 
No way. Like I would marry her in the words of the great philosopher, Andy Bernard, in a hurricane on top of a monsoon. I wanted to marry her right there, right now. And so fortunately, they had the good grace to go upstairs and ask my much wiser wife the same question. She said, yes, we're waiting. So we waited, we had this beautiful wedding, but, but get this, I remember, and this is why I'm sharing this, I remember this moment um, during the 30-minute rain delay, looking out the window in my suit and tie at the altar and at the rows of chairs and thinking, man, in 30 minutes, the woman of my dreams, like the God's best gift to me is gonna walk down that aisle. And I remember there was a sense of anticipation in that moment that is really hard to put into words. Like, like an all body experience where every fiber of my being couldn't wait for that moment. Listen, where we are in the Christian life right now is not unlike that moment. We're in the waiting We're in this in-between period, the here and the not yet. Here's what I mean by that. The grace of God has come. The first advent, the first appearance of grace has come. But really, if we're honest, much of the Christian life is then about waiting. This is why Paul instructs us to live godly lives in verse 12 in the present age. This present age is this in-between spot where we've been saved, we're being sanctified, but we know this church, the battle's not over yet. Like we still have to fight. We still have to resist temptation to fight, to wage war against sin. And there's a day coming when that battle will end, but we're not here yet. The wedding for us hasn't happened yet. And I think one of the sweetest blessings and benefits of a local church, Lord willing, like this one, is that we get to come together week after week and encourage each other in the waiting. We get to come together and to sing and to remind each other of what we know to be true, to sing godly scripture-saturated songs, to encourage each other, to build each other up in the waiting because we know that this life is not all there is because we too, church, are waiting for a wedding. The Bible gives us a picture of the day when Christ, the perfect bridegroom, will return to redeem and claim his bride, the church that's being prepared for him. And there will be a day for us when we cry out with the saints and the angels, the words of Revelation 19, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. We as the church are the bride of Christ and Christ is our glorious, perfect, all-powerful bridegroom. And so we live in this life with eager anticipation, waiting for the day where we'll come finally face-to-face with God. Church, I want us to see this. Until that day, God's grace will carry us through everything we go through on this life. And he doesn't just supply us with future grace. He gives us present grace, which means that And if you're having one of those brutal weeks, then you can testify to God's grace upholding you in the hardship, just like he upholds you in the joy. God's grace is sufficient. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter, or 2 Corinthians chapter 12. His grace is sufficient for you. His power is made perfect in weakness. So we know Christian, the appearance of grace carries us in the waiting until the day when our faith becomes sight. And here's the best news for us. That day will happen. That day is a reality because the first advent of Jesus, the first appearance of grace is simply paving the way for the second advent of Jesus. This is number two in your notes, the appearance of glory. Verse 13 again, 
This is what we're waiting for, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this first appearing, the appearance of grace, was just the beginning. It was the the first act, the first half of the story. But if we think that the first act is all there is, then we're going to be really mistaken. Because if Christ came as a real person in real flesh, if he lived a real perfect life, died on a real Roman cross, and then three days later rose really from a real tomb, then we can be sure that one day he will really come to complete the work that he started. Hebrews chapter 9 makes it clear that there must be a second coming of Christ. For that second appearance will once and for all save and redeem his people. I think we'll have it on the screen. Hebrews 9, 27 and 28 says this, Just as it is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so this text teaches us that the saving work of Jesus began with his first appearance, began with the appearance of grace, and it will be completed at the appearance of glory. And this second coming, this appearance of glory, will do two primary things. Letter A, the second appearance of Christ will reveal Christ as God. It will once and for all reveal Christ as God. Verse 13, we see, what I think is one of the clearest statements in the New Testament on the divinity of Jesus. Paul calls him in verse 13, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I think he does this because when Christ appears in glory, there will be no doubt on the mind of any human being that Jesus Christ is both Lord and God. Like, think about that day with me just for a moment. We we pray for it often. Whenever we pray the words of the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, what we're doing is we're asking God to usher in this second coming, this appearance of glory. And on the day when that actually happens, all 8 billion people in the world right now will realize in one awesome and terrifying moment that Jesus Christ is both Lord and God. Think about Mecca Like millions of people worshiping the false God of Islam on that day will come face to face with really the terrifying realization that Jesus wasn't just a prophet, but that he is Lord and God. Think about Mormons singing in temples right now all over the world. On that day, they will come to the realization that Jesus Christ was not created, but that he is the creator, that he is both Lord and God. People in our city, People in Williamsburg will come to the realization that Jesus is both Lord and God. So track with me here, church. It's not about if someone will come to realize that Jesus is Lord and God. It's about when, because it's gonna happen to everyone. Philippians 2 makes that clear. Philippians 2 verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. On the the day of the appearance of glory, there will be no doubt. Christ will be revealed as God and everyone will confess. Everyone will confess that Christ is revealed as Lord to the glory of God the Father. All right, the last thing that we see, one more thing that the appearance of glory will accomplish, letter B, the appearance of glory redeems his people. 
appearance of glory redeems his people. Titus 2, 14 again. Who gave himself, talking about Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. And I want us to see this all throughout scripture. God has been in the process of redeeming a people for himself. It's what God does, beginning with Abraham and the nation of Israel and culminating with Christ and his church. God has been winning back a people, winning back a sinful people, saving them, purifying them, making them his own. And so get this, Christian. This is our hope this morning. At the end of the day, we belong to God. That's all we have. That's our hope that we, at the end of the day, are a part of God's chosen people. And this hope that we have, the hope of our future redemption, carries us and it helps us in the here and the now because we have a hope and a perspective that this broken world is not all there is and that our final redemption is drawing near. All right, I wanna invite the band back up. I'll close with this. I want us to see one more thing because much of our time this morning has been focused on what these two appearances will do for us. So we've looked at, okay, what does the appearance of grace in verse 11 do for us? What are the implications of that appearance? And what does the appearance of glory do for us? I wanna close by giving us a picture of what they will actually look like. Because God in his kindness actually gives us some outlines in the scriptures of one, what the appearance of grace looked like, and two, what the future appearance of glory will look like. And so I'm gonna read a couple of extended passages from God's word. And I really want you to dial in. I know it's hot. You're probably tired. You're probably thinking about lunch. All good. I want you to hear these two last passages of scripture because they give us real insight into what these two appearances look like for us. All right, the first one, the appearance of grace will look like this. Matthew 21, verses one through nine. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Verse four, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Verse six, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and them that followed him shouted, Hosanna, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. We pray Hosanna, as we just sang here a minute ago, that's a prayer for deliverance. These people are excited that the appearance of grace had come. Now I want us to see something. Jesus came riding on a donkey. And in Bible times, when someone would, when a king would ride on a donkey, it would communicate a couple of things. It would communicate humility, meekness, grace, and gentleness. And that appearance, that Reality that Jesus on a donkey and on a colt is where we are right now. Again, if you're not in Christ, this is where you are right now. The offer of salvation is yours right now. 
You can believe in Jesus. You can believe in the message of the gospel. You can repent of your sin, turn back from your sin, put your faith and your trust in him because that offer of gentleness and mercy and grace is yours on the table right now. But if I can encourage you with one thing, it's to make that decision before the appearance of glory. Because in the scriptures, we get a picture of this second appearance. And on that day, there is no meekness. On that day, there is no gentleness. There's only the appearance of the glory of the Son of God. And so let me read what the Bible says about this second appearance. Revelation chapter 19. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There are no donkeys, in the second appearance. So donkey communicates gentleness and humility and meekness. In Revelation 19, Jesus returns in this appearance of glory, riding a white horse. So when a king in Bible times would ride on a white horse, he would do so to communicate a couple things. One, he would do so to communicate that the battle is over, that he's riding in and he's riding in victoriously. He's riding in because the battle is done and he has conquered and the conquering is done. And on that day, for the Christian, the same grace that saves us in the beginning when we first trusted in Jesus, the same grace that holds us in our walk with Christ right now will be the grace that preserves us and protects us on that day. We can pray kingdom come because on that day when that white horse and that one called faithful and true comes down, we are found in Christ. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But man, you don't want to be found outside of Christ on that day. In the appearance of grace, we see grace, an offer of forgiveness. In the appearance of glory, we see judgment when God will make every wrong right. He will wipe away every tears, tear from our eyes when he will redeem a people for himself and that his people will be solidified. And so Here's what I wanna do. I actually wanna invite a couple brothers uh, of our prayer team. They're gonna come up on either side of me. Um, they might bring their wives with them. If, yeah, if you guys wanna come up, I'd invite you up. Um, I'm gonna pray. And in light of these two passages, I'm gonna pray, I think, two different prayers. One, I'm gonna pray for the Christian that we would trust in the appearance of grace, be sustained by it, and that God would stir in us greater affection and eagerness for the appearance of glory. And then the second prayer I'm gonna pray is a prayer for someone who's not yet a follower of Jesus. And I'm gonna give you a chance this morning to trust in Jesus, to trust in this offer of grace before the appearance of glory. So would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. First, for the Christian, God, I thank you so much that we get to come and worship you this morning, that you have made grace accessible to us. I thank you for what an incredible passage of Titus chapter two. How you tell us that, that by your grace, we are saved and that by your grace, we're now trained to renounce ungodliness. And so I pray for the training grace of God for our people this morning here at Coastal Church. 
I pray, God, that if there is hidden sin in this room this morning, that we would find a time to expose it, that we would confess it, we would receive grace. God, we want to be a holy people. We want to be a sanctified, pure people. And so I pray right now, there's someone who's struggling with something that needs someone to talk about. Have them come talk to me, a member of our prayer team. I pray they would not leave here this morning without prayer. They would know this is a safe place to wage war against sin and to exalt in the grace of Jesus. And I pray, God, that even in my own heart right now, that you would stir up affection and anticipation for the second coming of Jesus. How often do I go by days and weeks without even thinking about the second coming of Jesus? May that not be the case. God, help me, help us to be heavenly minded, to leave here today knowing that this world is not all there is, that one day you're gonna return on that white horse and make everything right. You can return on that white horse and our redemption will be final and we'll be with you forever and ever and ever. We praise you for that truth this morning. God, now I pray for the one in the room who is not yet a follower of Jesus. I pray with all my heart that they would avail themselves of the appearance of grace. We know the gospel that Jesus is God, that he died on a cross for our sin, and that he bodily rose from the dead. So I pray right now, God, that if there's someone in here that is not a Christian, but they're hearing this word, they, they read this text and they think, man, God, tugging on my heart, I pray that that person would come talk to me, come talk to any one of our volunteers, that they would tap someone on the shoulder and just say, hey, can I talk to you about what it might mean to have our relationship with Jesus? God, I pray there'll be people in this room right now who would avail themselves of the appearance of grace. College students, I pray that they would avail themselves of the appearance of grace. High schoolers, would they avail themselves, God? Young parents, help them to avail themselves, God. Retirees, God, I pray you'd help them to avail themselves of the appearance of grace. And so God, we thank you so much for the perfect work of Jesus. Thank you for this sweet church family. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.